Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. I'm delighted to introduce today's talk, which is part of our Works in Focus series, bringing experts from around the world to examine iconic works from the RA exhibitions and our collection, and giving insight into the work's creation, history and legacy. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Robin Simon, who will be exploring the Mezzotint from Johann Zoffany's original painting, Academicians of the Royal Academy. The painting has been held in the Royal Collection since it was bought by the patron George III in 1772. The composition became famous in the form of the Mezzotint print in the following year and can be found in the RA's collection here. Dr. Robin Simon is the editor of the British Art Journal and honorary professor of English at the University College London. His new history of the Royal Academy will be published in a new book this May titled The Royal Academy, History and Collections. Robin has written numerous books, um, others including Hogarth, France and British Art, The Rise of the Arts in the 18th Century Britain, 2007, and with Martin Postle, Richard Wilson, The Transformation of European Landscape Painting in 2014. He was also the Paul Mellon Lecturer in British Art in 2013 at the National Gallery, London and Yale University. So I think we're in safe hands today. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Dr. Robin Simon. Thank you very much indeed. Well, good morning, everyone. There was uh, a Welshman, an Irishman, and an Englishman. Well, if this was the start of a joke, it would be a very complicated one indeed, because it would have to continue. And there was an American, a Swede, a Frenchman, an Austrian, two Swiss, two Germans, and four Italians. We could have been talking about a gathering in a very unusual pub, but we're describing the remarkably international and cosmopolitan group that founded the Royal Academy in 1768. Commemorated shortly afterwards in this painting by Johann Zoffany, who was one of the Germans. It was exhibited, as Amy said, at the New Academy in 1772 and immediately went into the royal collection of another German, George III. But it became widely known and celebrated through this very fine mezzotint of 1773 by Richard Earlham. I could continue the characterization of the founders of the Royal Academy by pointing out that they also included a father and daughter and two sets of brothers. Nine foundation members, as they're called, had actually been born on the continent, and several had trained there, including the English sculptor Joseph Wilton, who managed quite a, a, a full set of, of, of uh, traineeships, first in Belgium, then in Paris, then in Florence, and then in Rome. And the portraits of the academicians of the Royal Academy, to give it its full title, also included a famous anatomist on the right here, who was an honorary member, and a visiting figure model, modeler from China, who you can see wearing a very distinctive hat in the middle of that group on the left. Earlham's career, in fact, was closely bound up in the upheavals within the London art world that led to the foundation of the Royal Academy in 1768, the 250th anniversary of which we celebrate this year. Earlham, we're told, was inspired in his teens to study art by seeing the new Lord Mayor's coach in 1757, which was designed by the architect Sir Robert Taylor and decorated by the Italian Giovanni Battista Cipriani, who became a foundation member of the Royal Academy and duly appears in Zoffany's composition. Earlham trained as a draftsman under Cipriani, 
but also at the St. Martin's Lane Academy, the principal precursor of the Royal Academy, which had been founded as an artist cooperative by William Hogarth in 1735. Indeed, some of the equipment and assets of the St. Martin's Lane Academy, which closed in 1767, were shortly transferred, with the agreement of the subscribers, to the new Royal Academy. This material was described as, quote, furniture, anatomical figures, bustos, statues, lamps, and other effects. Some of these things, remarkably, are still in the Academy to this day. Now, the foundation of the Academy apparently took place within the space of a few days at the end of 1768. A group of artists appealed to the King for help on the 28th of November. On the 7th of December, the King approved a formal memorandum establishing a new Royal Academy. And on the 10th of December, the instrument of foundation was inscribed by the King with the words, I approve of this plan, let it be put into execution. But there was, as we now say today, a backstory. As the removal of that material from the St. Martin's Lane Academy indicates. Indeed, the King had already had to intervene in the internecine squabbles of the principal artist uh, institution, the Society of Artists of Great Britain. They'd been at war with each other among themselves since its very foundation in 1759, but things became quite intolerable in the 1760s. Now, the King offered his patronage not to the Society of Artists, but to the St. Martin's Lane Academy in 1767, which led to the subscribers of that academy closing it and removing their material that year. Their bustos and so on were placed in store in a building belonging to the deus ex machina of the entire operation, the decidedly shady King's librarian, engraver, antiquarian and dealer, Richard Dalton. And you can see what, um, uh, who was assisted by the director of the St. Martin's Lane Academy, George Michael Moser. And you can see uh, what a cruel caricature, caricature that is by Rowlandson if you compare it with Zoffany's depiction of him in the Academicians. Dalton at the time was, as it happens, the treasurer, no less, of the Society of Artists. At the Society, things came to a head with a tremendous row on the 4th of November 1768, when the architect William Chambers, later Sir William Chambers, and first treasurer of the Royal Academy, went more or less berserk over the leadership of the society and stormed out of the meeting. Chambers then, to put it very briefly, used his position as architect to the king to press the button that so swiftly led to the academy's foundation. Now, no fewer than 14 of the initial 34 members of, seven, of December 1768, 40 was the official number of members, uh, and it was quickly reached, had been involved in the St. Martin's Lane Academy. Moreover, 17 of the 34 had been members of the Society of Artists. When Chambers led the exit from the Society, those involved, it's, actually this is very like Brexit, it depends which way you're looking at it, uh, those involved saw themselves as resigning. But in the manner of these things, the Society saw things very differently. Now, incredibly, the Society's membership list, the role of obligation, was discovered as recently as 2015 here in the Academy, in store, unknown, hidden in the basement, uh, 
within a box marked artists' materials. Well, here it is, and as you can see, and this is where it's really like Brexit, the society considered not that Chambers and Co. had resigned, but that the society had expelled them. Although, as you can see, bewilderingly at the top there, Dalton somehow, strangely, remained on the books. The names of the likes of Joshua Reynolds and William Chambers, the first president and treasurer, respectively, Francis Heyman, Richard Wilson, Paul Sandby, Joseph Wilton, and Thomas Gainsborough are furiously struck through, and the word expelled written next to each one. Well, as I said, these foundation members had carefully stored the equipment of the St. Martin's Lane Academy in what was referred to as the warehouse of Richard Dalton at 125 Pall Mall, opposite what is now the Royal Opera Arcade. And this became the first home of the Royal Academy, seen here in a record of 1814. And it's uh, this building, just there. Uh, it's rather bewildering to see it described as the north side, but that's because it was the north side of St. James's Park, the south side of Pall Mall. The academy, as it became, was next door but one to the gate of Old Carlton House, which gives you an idea of how close this new academy was to the royal houses and parks. On the 14th of December, 1768, the first General Assembly met in this house, and three days later, it convened again to elect its officers and professors. On the 2nd of January, 1769, Reynolds gave his first address in this building. Well, what were those bustos and statues from the St. Martin's Lane Academy? The term refers to plaster copies after the antique, then an essential element in the training of artists who had to draw from them before ever being allowed near a live model. In Zoffany's composition, a number of them are lined up on shelves, and we can see a similar shelf in the back of his painting of the St. Martin's Lane Academy. One cast visible is this bust of the Emperor Commodus as a youth, which is still in the Academy today. In Zoffany's academicians on the central shelf are six casts. The first is that bust of Commodus. The standing female figure is the Matej series, the original of which was acquired by the Pope in 1770 from Giuseppe Matej and placed in the Museo Pio Clementino in Rome. Matthew Brettingham, the younger architect, had made a cast from it, and it may well have been from his mould that the Royal Academy acquired its own cast. In the centre of that shelf is Giambologna's Mercury, I think you can see that straight away, a cast that's no longer in the Academy collection. To the right is a bust of Niobe, a later version of which is now in the collection. Finally, in the right foreground of Zoffany's uh, painting, picture and the mezzotint, uh, lying on the floor, beneath the cane, positioned so suggestively by the artist Richard Cosway, is a cast of the torso of Venus known as the Richmond Aphrodite, which had been excavated in Rome only recently and had been acquired by William Locke from that tremendous um, operator, Thomas Jenkins. There's a characteristic Zoffany joke here because Cosway strikes a pose that recalls another classical statue famous from many casts, including one in the Royal Academy collection, the Apollo Belvedere. More than that, much more than that, Cosway was a notorious womanizer, hence his cane positioned right on the mound of Venus. And so what was meant by 
anatomical figures. In the background is the most famous such at the time of Zoffany's painting. It was a plaster cast of a flayed and dissected human corpse known as an écoché, created by the expert in these important aids to artistic instruction, the man we saw earlier standing next to Joshua Reynolds, the first president, always recognizable. Um, sorry, let me just go on. There's the écoché, there he is. Um, Reynolds on the left uh, and the anatomist, Dr. William Hunter, on the right. Hunter did indeed lecture at the Academy on Anatomy, as he had done at St. Martin's Lane. The écorché in question, which you can see in the back of the detail at the top right, uh, had been made for the Society of Artists, but that too had been spirited away to the Academy by the early 1770s. This particular écorché no longer exists, but it is recorded both here in this composition of Zoffany and in another painting by Zoffany that shows William Hunter teaching at the Academy. It also existed, and indeed it still does, in smaller versions cast in bronze. Dr. Hunter is shown holding one of them in Mason Chamberlain's portrait of him of 1769, while an original has just been acquired by the Yale Center for British Art in New Haven. Two further écorchés directly associated with Hunter do survive, unlike that one, within the Royal Academy. One is a polychrome figure mentioned in a letter of James Northcote. The coloured paint and areas of dissection, which are different, of different depths, show different layers of muscle and bone. Conservation work carried out in the 1990s revealed a removable circular section in the abdomen of the cast uh, designed to show its internal organs. Hunter made this écorché in December 1771, having first used the original corpse, if you follow me, uh, for two lectures in the Royal Academy. We don't know how long it took to give those two lectures, but I should think it was within fairly rapid succession. The body was that of a Jewish man hanged for robbery and murder. And the fact that the écorché shows these two levels of dissection presumably reflects the focus of each successive lecture. After the delay in giving those lectures, it must have been imperative to make the plaster pretty quickly and dispose of the body as soon as possible. Now, the second écorché produced by Hunter for the Academy goes by the mock Latin name of Smugglerius, which it was given by students when it was made in 1776, although this is actually a replica made in 1834 by William Pink. We know how this écorché was created. In a letter from the student John Deere to his father of the 1st of May, 1776, he wrote, I have seen two men hanged, and one with his breast cut open at Surgeon's Hall. The other, being a fine subject, they took him to the Royal Academy and covered him with plaster of Paris after they'd put him in the position of the dying gladiator, also known as the dying Gaul, by the way. Well, there were only two double executions at Tyburn in London uh, during the spring of 1776, and the second of those must have been the one in question here, that of Benjamin Harley and Thomas Henman on the 27th of May. Their sentences actually specified that they were to be dissected, 
uh, after execution. And crucially, it mentioned that they were a pair of smugglers who murdered a revenue officer, which explains the nickname Smuggleerius. At the Royal Academy, the chosen body, we don't know which one it was, was flayed by William Hunter, while the sculptor Agostino Carlini, a foundation member, one of the four Italians, set its pose of the dying gladiator or dying Gaul. A cast of which was indeed in the Academy's collection. You can just see it in the background. Well, this is an intriguing collaboration between science and art that throws light upon discussions within the Academy. Between those such as Hunter, who favored the study of the human body and its anatomy, and those chiefly Reynolds, uh, who considered that the study of nature was only useful insofar as it enabled the artist to improve upon nature and to arrive at an ideal. Smuggleerius, in his slightly gruesome fashion, manages to combine both approaches through its reference to the antique, those sculptures that were considered to represent the human form in its most perfect shape. Well, in addition to bustos and statues, there was that reference to furniture. In the life room of the Royal Academy schools, uh, built to the design of Sidney Smirk RA in the late 1860s, are two tiers of curved benches, with, in front, a broad rail with a shelf on which drawing boards can be rested. The ensemble is believed to have been transferred to Burlington House in 1869, how it got here, having previously been at New Somerset House from about 1781, and subsequently from 1837 in the National Gallery building on Trafalgar Square, where the Royal Academy was for some 30 years. The same thing uh, appears in records by Thomas Rowlandson. You can probably see these straight away, I think. It, it doesn't need me to point out uh, the similarity uh, between them. And something very similar can be seen in Zoffany's Academicians in his earlier life class at Martin's name. There, there, there. The easiest bit you can see just, just there. Well, according to the furniture uh, <coughs> historian Simon Jervis, it's perfectly possible that these elements in the present life room, there they are, date back to 1735 when William Hogarth established the second St. Martin's Lane Academy in St. Peter's Court off St. Martin's Lane. As Simon Jarvis puts it, they may thus be, in Royal Academy terms, prehistoric relics. Well, what of the lamps? Well, here very prominently in both uh, Zoffany's pictures is a lamp which had or could be fitted with shutters to direct the light. As we can see here, in a drawing, I hope, yes, of uh, Dr. Hunter lecturing before the live model in his own much smaller anatomy chambers by the Swedish artist Elias Martin, ARA. A similar lamp appears again uh, in Rowlandson. And the modern life room indeed has a lamp with shutters serving the same purpose, although, of course, it also has a lovely modern track upon which to run around the same se semicircular shape. Well, in marked contrast with these inanimate objects or casts after corpses, the new academy also managed to take, among what it called other effects, the very much alive and kicking porter of the St. Martin's Lane Academy, John Malin, who had doubled as a male model in the life class. He's here, actually, in a red coat uh, there, doing his job 
uh, as porter at the back of St. Martin's Lane Academy in about 1761 to 2. Uh, and here he is again in the new academy, posing for Thomas Banks in about 1769. As Zoffany's picture tells us, studying from the life was central to the purpose of the Royal Academy. And let's look again at the organization of the picture. It's very cleverly contrived uh, as if to represent a real event, the setting of the pose of the life model by the assembled academicians who are chiefly reacting to the action taking place at the right, as we see it, in their various ways. Michael Moser, who was keeper of the Royal Academy schools, where the young artists trained, is looping a rope around the model's wrist, which was, of course, essential for him to hold the pose for any length of time. Francesco Zuccarelli, there he is, considers the pose and advises on it, no doubt, as does Richard Yeo next to him. Behind them, are Francesco Bartolozzi and Agostino Carlini, uh, who are also discussing the setting of the pose, and so on. Yet, this is all entirely imaginary. The task of setting the model was never the keeper's job, uh, nor indeed of all the academicians together, as you can imagine, but the business of one of the nine so-called visitors who were elected annually from among the members. This is, then, an imaginary scene as one might expect, although it's a remarkably animated and realistic one, and more convincing, I think we must agree, than, for instance, the very lovely later painting of Henry Singleton, which is much more like a grown-up school photograph, or indeed, like the modern photograph of the present academicians. Well, in addition to its naturalistic liveliness, there is careful thinking behind Zoffany's imaginary construct. To begin with, the casts and the life models, casts, life models, refer to two pillars of artistic training within the academy. While the presence of the anatomist, uh, Dr. Hunter, stroking his chin in a reflective way, together with his écorché in the background, adds another absolutely key element to the training. And the fact that, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Hunter um, is standing right next to Joshua Reynolds is highly significant. Towards the left of the composition, as we look at it, are those most involved in the establishment of the academy. And so next to Reynolds, the president, is William Chambers, uh, the treasurer. And next to him is Francis Newton, the secretary. While the prominently seated figure uh, is Francis Heyman, the first librarian, appointed on the 1st of October, 1770, directly by the king. It's very interesting that Heyman had such a significant role to play in the foundation of the Royal Academy. But there was, again, a backstory to all that. In 1755, Heyman had actually chaired a committee of 26 artists, which came up with a rather snappily titled Plan of Academy for the Better Cultivation, Improvement, and Encouragement of Painting, Sculpture, Architecture, and the Arts of Design in General. Many of the artists associated in this elaborate project went on, in fact, to become foundation members of the Royal Academy, including not only Heyman, but Francis Newton, Michael Moser, William Hoare, Joshua Reynolds, Samuel Whale, Thomas Sandby, and Richard Yeo. Another was John Gwynne, and he's tucked away rather there. He was, um, yes, uh, next behind 
Johann's often his self-portrait. But he's rather interesting because he was the author of a proposal also published in 1755, an essay in two parts on the necessity and form of a royal academy for painting, sculpture, and architecture. And as early as 1749, Gwynne had published an essay on design, including proposals for erecting a public academy. Now, Heyman was also one of the key figures in that secession from the Society of Artists. He'd been president there until the breakup led by Chambers, when he and 16 others left to form the Royal Academy. Over on the right of Zoffany's picture, if we consider the left to be about the, those involved in establishing the Royal Academy, we see those more directly involved in the present training of the young artists in the Royal Academy's schools. Moser, of course, uh, who we saw, looked at earlier, uh, was the keeper of the schools. But then Francesco Zuccarelli was one of the nine visitors of 1770 when we know Zoffany started his painting. The visitors being entrusted with setting the model, as his rather critical reaction suggests. Directly behind him are Samuel Whale, who's seated, and Edward Penny, who's standing next to the Ecoche. And they're significant because they're the first professors of perspective and painting. Now, Mary Ann Stevens has suggested that Zoffany's planning of this composition owed much to Raphael, particularly his school of Athens, which Zoffany would have known well from his time in Rome from 1753. But also because Zoffany's master in Rome, Anton Raphael Mengs, had painted a famous copy of it in 1755, while Zoffany was still his pupil. The Raphael is indeed organized in a similar way, with two groups either side of a central pivot. And the two groups also represent, as do Zoffany's, towards our left, the world of the ideal, Plato, the Platonic ideal, and to our right, the empirical material world of Aristotle. That divergence between the ideal and the particular that divided Hunter and Reynolds. Now, I mentioned that both groups are essentially reacting to the action on the right, the setting of the model. There are two main exceptions to this focus. There is Richard Wilson, uh, wrapped up, there he is, <laughs> introspectively uh, in the background. By this time, uh, Wilson was suffering from severe illness that led him famously, notoriously, to drink in an attempt to dull the pain. In a rare gesture of, of sympathy, very rare for Zoffany, uh, Zoffany actually painted out the pot of porter that he had originally put on the shelf next to Wilson. And then there is the artist himself, who stares out at us from the edge of the picture. Uh, here he is, Zoffany, in much the same way that Raphael does in the School of Athens. Now, it so happens that while Zoffany put himself in the picture, several other academicians are missing. Two of them, perhaps very notoriously these days, uh, were the women members, Angelica Kaufman and Mary Moser, who were only present in the form of paintings, of portraits of them, on the wall, in deference, no doubt, to their presumed sensibilities about nude male life models. Missing altogether, and perhaps much more importantly, was the foundation member, Thomas Gainsborough. We know that in February 1772, Zoffany still meant to include Gainsborough in his composition. At that date, Gainsborough wrote 
that he'd just entrusted Zoffany with two drawings for the Academy. Zoffany had been visiting Gainsborough in Bath in order to paint this portrait sketch, which was evidently intended to pop him in at the right-hand side of the Academicians, along with three other late insertions at the same place. They were all to be accommodated by the addition of a substantial strip of extra canvas. Two were Richard Cosway, whom we've already met. Uh, here he is. Uh, and Joseph Nollikins, right next to him. Uh, and uh, uh, that's because um, they were elected in 1771 and 1772 while Zoffany was painting the composition, when he's still working on his painting. The other one is this man, Nathaniel Hone. Now, he may not have been initially uh, planned to be included because he was probably already conducting a feud with Joshua Reynolds, which he did on and off for years. And he may only have agreed to be included when Zoffany's work was quite advanced. The reason for Gainsborough's uh, absence, however, is very different. It must be his dissatisfaction, another row, with the hanging of his paintings at the annual exhibition. And indeed, from 1773 until 1776, Gainsborough refused to submit any works for the annual exhibition. Others missing are the brothers George and Nathaniel Dance. Nathaniel, like Gainsborough, was fed up with his treatment by the hanging committee at the exhibitions, but we have no idea why George refused to be included. One other foundation member may have originally been in there, but was painted out. John Baker, the flower painter, because he died on the 30th of April, 1771, while the picture was underway. Now, there's a parallel for Zoffany's developing composition over a period of some time in making all sorts of alterations to it. Uh, and his great Tribuna of the Uffizi, which was commissioned by Queen Charlotte as a pendant to the academicians. For this purpose, Zoffany was sent off to Florence in 1772. But nobody could have anticipated that he would remain there until 1779, by which time he'd made so many additions to his composition, including lots of jokes about the sexual proclivities of the men in the painting, that when they finally saw the picture, the king and queen were horrified. From being their favorite painter, with whom they could happily chat in German, Zoffany didn't work again for the royal family for 15 years. Zoffany's additions and alterations uh, to his tribuna were very much along the lines of his visual puns centered upon Richard Cosway and the Richmond Aphrodite. Not subtle, in other words. The principal royal objection was to the presence of Thomas Patch and Sir Horace Mann, uh, because, the king said, they were men addicted to improper practices. Here they are talking to each other. This is Sir Thomas Mann and this is Thomas Patch. Now, um, what they're doing here, uh, Patch, they, they've got the Titian Venus on, the, on, the, on this canvas here, maybe the copy, maybe the original, because Patch was copying it. Uh, and Patch is, in fact, gesturing past the female nude to this group, uh, which, of course, is the famous wrestlers, which is a sufficiently ambiguous antique uh, sculpture in itself, as though they're suggesting that they're not really interested in naked ladies. That's what they're interested in. And the point was much more obvious at first, because during conservation, it was discovered that um, on the buttock of this one, just here, was a black patch, in reference to Thomas Patch. And Zoffany thought, OK, I can, they'll get the joke anyway, and, and painted it out. 
Well, Zoffany couldn't resist, including many, many more, and I haven't got time to go into them, double entendre and visual puns in this wonderful composition, as in the group at the left, where we can see that the uh, Cupid and Psyche statue here, they're just about to kiss, is reflected, here's the pose, in these two men who appear to be about to kiss. And then, of course, uh, why is this boy looking so surprised? Oh, well, it could be by this man coming at him from behind. No wonder the king was rather shocked. The academicians, in contrast, is very restrained, apart from that little joke about Cosway, which is just as well for Zoffany's relationship with the king and queen at this point in his career. But another artist not in the picture tells us much about the way in which the academy was founded and needs some explanation. That key person, missing, was never invited to become an academician, and boy, was he cross. This was the distinguished, very distinguished Scottish engraver, Sir Robert Strange. In order to understand his fury, we need to return to the maker of this mezzotint, Richard Earlham. Earlham could not have done better than study with Cipriani, who had himself trained in the academy in Florence. Hence the perfectly sound uh, academic quality of his paintings on the Lord Mayor's coach, which we can still admire today, that inspired the young Earlham. At the Florence Academy, Cipriani had studied alongside another foundation member of the Royal Academy, also born in Florence in the same year, 1727, Francesco Bartolozzi, we saw uh, earlier. In London, Bartolozzi engraved hundreds of prints after Cipriani, having been made engraver to the king shortly after his arrival in London in 1764. Earlham, unlike Bartolozzi, and Earlham was hugely distinguished in his own lifetime, unlike Bartolozzi, was never to become an academician. The reason is that at its foundation, the Royal Academy excluded engravers. And so what on earth is Bartolozzi, the engraver, doing here at the very heart of the new academy? Well, it's a very strange story less about Bartolozzi than about Sir Robert Strange. Shortly after Earlham's print was published, 1773, Strange published a vicious attack upon the new Royal Academy in 1775, which followed a very sour account of 1771 entitled, The Conduct of the Royal Academicians While Members of the Society of Artists. Here is the title page of his 1775 inquiry which, as you can see, mentions Strange's affiliations with academies in Europe. Member, he announces, of the Royal Academy of Painting at Paris, of the Academies of Rome, Florence, Bologna, Professor of the Royal Academy at Parma, etc. And at the back of the book, and it's in the, his personal copy is in the Royal Academy Library here, uh, are attached original letters and diplomas relating to Strange's membership of the Parma and Bologna academies. It was a very obvious point. Here I am, a member of all these famous academies in Europe, and yet I'm excluded from the new one in London. Now, the extraordinary mixture of nationalities involved in founding the Royal Academy was significant in many ways. First, it tells us about the cosmopolitan nature of late 18th century London art world. Secondly, it means that almost all the foundation members were familiar with the academies in Europe, which, after all, had to provide the model for their new institution. 
No fewer than 14 had been to Rome, and they knew the Accademia di San Luca and the French Academy's Rome offshoot in Palazzo Mancini. In Paris, the Academy Royale was familiar to almost all Foundation members and had been the object of close scrutiny by British artists wherever occasional outbreaks of peace allowed them to visit France, from at least the time of Sir James Thornhill in 1717. So strange with his announcement about his membership of all these European academies, must have thought he was holding a very strong hand. He was not. It's not just that some of these affiliations and diplomas were hardly worth the paper they were written on, which is partly true. It was that the new Royal Academy was the work of a close group of professional allies, personal friends, and family relations. And above all, the fact that Strange had a supreme gift for making enemies. 17 Foundation members had been, like Strange, as I said, members of the Society of Artists. And Strange became a director of what was left of the Society of Artists in 1768 and was instrumental in announcing their expulsion. So Strange's exclusion from the Royal Academy was personal. Uh, and the academicians were actually rather uncomfortable about all this. And as early as January 1769, they introduced associate membership for a maximum of six engravers. But engravers were forbidden to become full academicians until 1853. It was a very odd situation, because the academy in France fully admitted engravers. So did those in Italy, as Strange's affiliation with those institutions makes quite clear. On the face of it, the exclusion of engravers in London might be interpreted as high-minded. But a glance at the nature of the foundation members makes that impossible to sustain. No one could claim that the membership in 1768-9 was confined to the highest reaches of the fine arts. There was, for example, a painter of coats of arms on furniture and coaches, Charles Catton, a painter of flowers on coaches, John Baker, a coin and medal engraver, Richard Yeo, and a drapery painter, as it were, a rude mechanical, Peter Toms, to whom Reynolds, Francis Coates, and Benjamin West, among many others, were indebted for assistance in the completion of their portraits. Now, Strange's family papers and letters were gathered together and published in 1855, in which, and in them, Strange specifically complains that the exclusion of engravers from the Royal Academy was just a ploy intended to keep him out. He was absolutely right. And he was also right in pointing out that Bartolozzi should not have been a foundation member. That obstacle was circumvented by simply asserting that Bartolozzi was a painter, although he never, as far as I can see, once painted a picture professionally in his entire life. Both Strange and Bartolozzi were brilliant engravers, but they could hardly have been more different. Strange was ambitious and incredibly prickly, although wedded to the highest standards of traditional copper plate engraving. Bartolozzi was charming and laid back and famously innovative and perfected the technique of stipple engraving, which imitated the soft effects of pencil or pastel to a remarkable degree. Now, Strange, absolutely typically, had made a, li a lifelong enemy of Bartolozzi already in Bologna in 1763, together uh, with none other than the King's Librarian Richard Dalton, in whose premises in Pall Mall the future academy was to be based. Dalton and Bartolozzi were in Bologna on a mission for the king, and they had actually jumped ahead of Strange uh, in booking access to churches and collections in order to make drawings with a view for engravings. 
while Strange, as so often in his life, was furious. And then he came up with a scheme to try and deal with it, which was absolutely fatal. Uh, he enlisted the support of, um, uh, of Henry Cardinal York, who was the brother of the Stuart pretender to the throne of George III. Nothing could have been more calculated to alienate him from uh, the future Royal Academy and Royal Patronage. And in fact, Strange being Strange, had already annoyed George III when he was still Prince of Wales by refusing to engrave his father's portrait in 1758, a row that also earned Strange the antagonism of all people, William Chambers. By the time the Royal Academy was founded, Strange had ensured that he would be excluded. In contrast, Bartolozzi had been invited to England by Dalton with the promise of employment as the king's engraver. He was always going to become a foundation member. Strange's boasting about those European academies cut no ice. And in fairness, the Royal Academy was determined to be an institution to which future admission, however it was founded at the time, to which future admission would be without favour and upon merit upon the lines of the Académie Royale in Paris, to which membership was only open after the most rigorous training and examination, while also offering teaching and exhibitions. Now, this is in marked contrast with most of those Italian academies to which Strange drew attention on the title page of his book, including the most alluring Italian academy, the Accademia di San Luca in Rome, which conducted no teaching and held no regular exhibitions. Indeed, for all that Strange might vaunt his membership of that particular academy, the Academy of Rome, his memoirs reveal that he contrived to get into it by offering a bribe. The process is fascinating. He was duly put up for what was called an election, and that meant black balls excluded and white admitted in the usual way. He'd been proposed for membership by the Academy's president, Mauro Fontana. Good start. The election proceeded, and in the chair, who should be in the chair, but the engraver, great engraver, uh, Giovanni Battista Piranesi. Well, it was a curious election. Uh, there were no black balls, but that's not surprising, because there were only two votes cast, both of them white, out of a membership of 90, even though the rules technically demanded two-thirds majority for admittance. And Strange didn't even bother to present the miniature that he offered as a mark of his reception. He actually boasted about how clever he'd been in what he called, quote, overruling the laws of the institution in Rome. Well, no such stratagems were necessary at the academies in Parma or Bologna, where he was simply ushered in. While in Florence, election to the Accademia del Disegno was, if anything, even more of a formality for foreign artists. Many foreign artists were elected to the Florentine Academy without visiting the city or even Italy. And that seriously dull painter, Stephen Slaughter, contrived to be elected in 1765 when he was already dead. Well, Strange, after his success in Rome and Italy, planned a similar attack upon the French Academy in Paris. He wrote, I shall endeavour to be received among the class of painters and consequently present the Academy with some drawing... The key point is, though, he knew all along he was going to get in because he was a Roman Catholic and a Jacobite who'd fought at Culloden. And he was in a very good position to be welcomed into the Roman Catholic, very much so, French Academy. And he duly became its first British member. Well, in a curious twist, despite 
that inquiry into the Royal Academy, what William Chambers called that strange fellow, Strange's strange book, he was eventually knighted by the king in 1787. But that happened entirely because he was a close friend of Benjamin West. Personal connections, again, of precisely the kind that had kept Strange out of the Royal Academy and which he so bitterly resented. In fact, in addition to Strange, there was another Scotsman who wasn't asked to the party. This was the great architect, Robert Adam. The reason? Well, he was simply kept out by his rival, the King's architect, Sir William Chambers, who went to great pains to ensure that the professional architectural membership of the New Academy, whatever the instrument a foundation might say about architecture, was confined entirely to himself. And so, without either Strange or Adam, that joke I began with would never have worked. After all, you can't begin, there was a Welshman, an Irishman, and an Englishman, but um, no Scotsman. But it is a very good way to remember the peculiar manner in which the Royal Academy was founded. Not so much as the great institution it became, but as a very personal club. There's one more thing to add about this wonderful print. Earlham, as I mentioned, was one of the most successful engravers of his time. When he died in 1822, he was worth an astonishing 14,000 pounds. But when Zoffany saw the engraving, this engraving, in Italy in 1774, when he was working on the Tribuna, he wrote to Joseph Banks, I saw a print of the Academy, which very little pleased me. There is no likeness in the heads, and I very much wonder at the success of it. Well, we may beg to disagree. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. My goodness, the scandal. I'm amazed we are still here. <laughs> um, we do have a little bit of time for questions, so if anyone has one... Then what happened to the Society of Artists once the Academy had been formed uh, and they had, uh, and did they sort of dwindle and die or how yes. did it work? Yes, it did, yeah. It took them some time, I can't remember, but a couple of decades. Um, is, it, uh, is Dr. Hunter, the Hunter of Wellington, uh, still Glasgow? Yes, he is. And why was it that he left his wonderful Shada and uh, Rembrandt uh, to Glasgow? Well, that's where, that's where Okay, yes. it, it was, he, yeah. he didn't feel that he should, it should leave it to the academy. Yeah. yeah, so, I mean, the reason he is a Scotsman, but he wasn't a foundation member, he was only an honorary member, so I was allowed to get him to, to make that point. Um, but yes, he was a very proud Scotsman, although he worked a lot of his time in, in London, of course he did, yes. Yeah. No, it's interesting, that I, I think that's very significant. Could you just tell us something about the wonderful lighting system, please? Well, they're just they're candles. I mean, that, that, that's what they are, under a, a metal reflecting shade. And the, this, this one, you can't see here, but they normally had shutters, which would drop down and then rotate. Uh, you could slide them around so that the light could be positioned uh, cast forward onto the model, if you see what I mean. Uh, there, there were some other... Examples of that actually, which would be easier to see. Lighting in a room. I mean, presumably this room doesn't have enormous windows or, or whatever. No, no, that's right. Uh, it's actually a matter of uh, some discussion as to where this room is. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm convinced it's in the first 
apprentices in Pall Mall at 125 um, Pall Mall. Uh, and it did, it, well, but there were people who say oh, maybe it was the exhibition room. Actually, there were two great exhibition rooms, or two exhibition rooms. And I think one of them uh, uh, had um, very, uh, well, we know it definitely had a, a great big raised top lit um, story above in the centre of the room. Uh, <coughs> You know, coved, coved sort of ceiling, and then this great big um, thing let into the top. But the other one may not have done. I don't. I, we simply don't know. And I, but I suspect that this was the life room, and the other one with the top lighting was the exhibition room. Um, I seem to remember there was an interesting scan. Was it Mary Moser and Nath or Nathaniel, um, the Nathaniel painter that you mentioned in there? Yeah. There was some scandal about him doing Prince of Mary Moser and a suggestion of impropriety. Do you know that story? I don't, I'm afraid. I'm oh. really like every scrap of filth I can find. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see if I can find it you for you. Tell us. <laughs> 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 you Do you know any more about the lady painters represented well, in the well, pictures? Well, uh, Angelica Corfman certainly was involved in some glorious scandals. I mean, she, yeah. she, she married a... Um, a tremendous um, spiv called, who, who, who was just a, just a man from the gutter who called himself Count Horn, which is an interesting <laughs> choice of, of, of name. And, and, and she, sort of, she came with a certain reputation, um, weirdly associated with um, the infatuation of Joshua Reynolds. It's most peculiar, because how can I put this about Joshua Reynolds? He wasn't, he wasn't very interested in girls. Uh, and um, <laughs> nonetheless, he'd known her in Rome, but then She'd also known Benjamin West in Rome and a, a number of other um, gallants. I mean, West was uh, probably a bit more likely to be interested in her. But she came with, with a bit of a reputation, actually. And then she did really hit the headlines with a, by marrying this completely um, complete fraud. Yeah. Uh, uh, and then that split up. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. <coughs> Sorry. Is it Angelica on the left? Oh, yes, indeed. Yes, I beg your pardon. Yes, yes. I'm glad to come left and Mary Mose on the right. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yes, my wife and I live in Richmond and we worship at St. Anne's Church in Kew, where I'm sure you know Zoffin is buried. And the story I heard was that when he was out of favour, he lived just on the other side of the river in Chiswick, while the royal family were often in Kew Palace. And Zoffany was just waiting and waiting for instructions which never came. Does that sound about right? Yes, absolutely. No, absolutely. He, but Zoffany was never one to hang about too long. I mean, he, you know, if things didn't work out, he'd go off to India or something, which he did. You know. he, he was forever. And when things were really set up well, he'd then get involved by, with an underage girl or something. And, you know, for years and years, he had a, a wife back in Germany. She did come to England, but she went home almost immediately. And he was then lived with various people called Mrs. Zoffany. Um, but uh, one, of, one of them, uh, when he went, you know, doing a quick flit, to the, the, the commission of the tribune and got him out of one, you know, it's rather like, oh, it's like Captain Grimes in um, Decline and Fall, you know, in the soup again, you know. Uh, and they say, oh, what happened? Oh, just the usual thing. Well, in the case of Zoffany, it was girls, girls, girls. And he arranged to go to Italy to escape from this underage girl, 14-year-old girl who he seduced. Uh, and he was thinking, oh, on the ship. And I actually popped. From a cupboard, she'd stowed away on the ship and went, <laughs> right, right, went to the And in fairness, they remained together, and, and, and she was known ever afterwards as Mrs. Offaly. And he did eventually marry her, actually, but not until after his first wife had died. 
He liked to observe the proprieties. <laughs> Oh, hello. I, I wondered if um, anyone could tell from the um, the kind of wig he's got on who it might be. Should I take it? Sorry, you want to know who it is? Uh, I th it says on the back that it's a, an, uh, an artist. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, no, a, an Famous actor. Famous artist, that's often <laughs> No, yeah. I think it says actor, doesn't it? Does it say actor? Oh, does it, oh, it says actor. I haven't got my spectacles. Yeah, <laughs> I think it says an actor. But, Ooh, but the, the, the wig's not... Uh, the, the wig's very old-fashioned, isn't it? It is, yeah. But actually, that's not unusual. Um, it's, it's fatal to try and date pictures by wigs because people kept wigs... You know, if a wig fitted, you just hang on to it. He's an actor. He might have been acting, but it's not at all like Garrett. No, 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 it's not Garrett. I don't know who it is. I, I, I know quite a few actors. I, I don't recognise them off the, you know, off the top of my head. But yeah, wigs are, are, are very treacherous things. Um, so you could well have just kept a wig that's comfortable. I mean, Handel is... is when George Frederick Handel, composer, came to uh, England, first of all, 1777, 1778, he certainly settled in London in He bought furniture, clothes, wigs and everything in London. And he never changed them. And that's... So when you see a portrait of 1756 of, of, of Handel by Thomas Hudson, he's sitting in a chair of 1707. And so very disconcerting if you start saying, oh, well, the chair, it doesn't. And the same with wigs. You know, people like wigs, and then they just stuck with them. Yeah, it's lovely. Are there any more questions? I just wondered, um, did, did I understand you to say that the Swede Elias Martin artist was one of the founders? And is he in the picture? Sorry, does the Martin say... No, um, well, you pronounce it Elias Martin, but oh, the Swedish okay. artist. Yeah, interesting man, Elias Martin. Is yeah. he in the picture? No, he's not, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, but he, he was, he was, he was, he became an ARA. The, the Swede in the, the Swede is, is Sir William Chambers, who was Swedish, he was born in Stockholm. Yeah, sorry, I should have explained that, shouldn't I? But, you know, and, but Elias Martin was his protege, because he, he, he found it very, they could speak Swedish together. And so Elias Martin, very, very quickly, he was a student in the RA school, so very quickly became an ARA. Uh, the interesting thing about him is uh, he went back, uh, he, well, uh, everybody rather lost sight of him. He, he, he went back to, to Sweden, then he came back to England again, but he didn't live in London, so nobody knew where he was. He was actually in Bath for a very long time. Uh, and then, uh, he, he, then he eventually went, made his way back to Sweden. But um, I'm trying to remember exactly what happened, but they, 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 the academicians were completely unaware of his existence and, and just more or less reported him in the minutes as dead, but very, very much alive. But he just wasn't in London. <laughs> thank you all very much for coming. I'd just like to thank Robin Simon for a brilliant lecture. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.